Good morning. Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to 1 Corinthians. The text to which we will turn our attention this morning is found in chapter 2 of what we call Paul's first letter to the Church of God in Corinth. We continue our slow march through this wonderful letter. As we mentioned last week, here in chapter 2, Paul is in the middle of an extended argument. He has been contrasting the wisdom of this world, or fleshly, carnal wisdom, with the true wisdom of God. Wisdom that is principally seen in the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. The wisdom of Christ crucified, Paul says, is the very power of God. And that is the only sure foundation upon which Paul has built his ministry. But the Corinthians have instead fallen for the temptation of worldliness. They were fighting, they were backbiting, they were arguing, they were dividing over worldly estimations of wisdom. They were drawn toward the external, towards the impressive, towards flashy rhetoric and eloquent teaching. And the church was rupturing, it was fracturing over these divisions. Corinthians thought themselves to be the wise and the mature ones of the faith, but in fact, by their behavior, they were demonstrating the opposite, that they were in fact the infants in the faith. They were neglecting God's wisdom and had taken upon the worldly judgments and worldly values. And today, in our text, we'll see Paul address the spiritual nature of God's wisdom. You see, unlike the world's wisdom, which is obsessed with power and impressive shows of eloquence, The message of the cross is revealed only by the Spirit of God. And it concerns itself not with power, like worldly wisdom, but with humility. Not with dominance, but with submission. Indeed, submission even unto death and the grave. And we'll also see how this temptation, the temptation that trapped the Corinthians, is not relegated to distant past. It's alive today. We can fall prey to such enticements to worldly wisdom and so undermine the cross of its very power, Paul says. And so let's look at our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'll begin reading at verse 6, and our text of focus will be 10 through 13. Hear the word of our Lord. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but, by, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect and holy word for us. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we come to you asking very simply that in your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would show us ourselves and show us Christ. 
Help us to see us as we are and help us to see Christ as he is and what he has done for us. And by seeing, help us to believe. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin by looking at verse 10 and seeing first the Spirit's ministry to us. The Holy Spirit's ministry to us. Verse 10 says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. These things, he says. Well, what things, Paul? Paul has previously been speaking of the secret and hidden wisdom of God, the wisdom that was veiled to this world, the wisdom that no eye could see, nor could any ear hear, nor any heart imagine. That's the wisdom. That's the thing that he's talking to us about. And that wisdom has been made clear on the cross. That wisdom, as we discussed last week, has been revealed through the coming of Jesus Christ and through his ministry on behalf of his people. That's what's been revealed to us. And the fact that it had to be revealed to us shows us something. It shows us something about ourselves. It shows us our natural need, our natural incapacity, our inability to grasp the wisdom of God on our own. You see, since the entrance of sin into the world through Adam's disobedience in the garden, every man, woman, and child has had an inability on their own to grasp the things of God. We're naturally born blind because of our sin, blind to the wisdom of God. You see, not to preempt next week's sermon, but the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. That's what Paul says in the very next verses. But God has, through His Holy Spirit, revealed this spiritual wisdom to the church of God at Corinth. And He's given us eyes to see. Theologians call this the illumination of the Holy Spirit. That is... It's like we were all, before Christ, sitting in a dark room, unable to even see what was around us, unable to see the unifying wisdom of God, the wisdom that was hidden in ages past. But now the Holy Spirit has turned the lights on. He's worked in our hearts to remove the blinders of sin that we had over our eyes, and now we can see, now we can understand, now we can appreciate and cherish the wisdom of God revealed in the cross of Christ. And that illumination is only achieved by the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, man's wisdom is totally impotent to bring about true illumination. Modern man, in his pride, thinks that he can solve every problem. He thinks that we can educate mankind out of all of its problems. If we just get better schools, better teachers, better curricula, newer buildings, newer technology, then our students will be set on the right path, and that would solve all the problems that society has with crime and brokenness and poverty. Or man will say that politics will solve our problems. If we just get the right people in the right places, that'd solve it. If we get the right pieces of legislation passed, the right justices on the right courts, the right leaders in place, then we'll all be going in the right direction. That's what we need. And if we can just make that happen, then society would be going in the right direction again. Then we can save America from whatever political party you don't like, from the liberals or from the conservatives as if political theory was our ultimate problem. The ultimate problem we have is a sin problem. Sin has blinded our eyes. Sin has brought a curse upon the world. Sin has brought crime and corruption and poverty and brokenness to society. And sin is a spiritual problem. No fleshly solution can remedy a spiritual problem. For a spiritual problem, you need a spiritual solution. And that is what God has provided, Paul says. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, 
not through education. Paul was an educated man. He was trained by the one, one of the most well-known rabbis of his day. He was a scholar. But he knew that none of it meant anything outside of the Spirit's work of illumination. No training, no education, no amount of fleshly effort can remold and force a man into the kingdom of God. Only the Spirit of God can do that. And we have to remember that. We were blind. We were stumbling around in darkness. We were inept and incompetent. We were full of sin, seeking the pleasures of worldly wisdom. That was us. We were unable to even see the glory of God in the wisdom of the cross. We were in the grave, dead in our sins, Paul will say elsewhere. We were wholly unable to resurrect ourselves, totally unable to extricate ourselves from the curse. But God, but God has worked in the hearts of his people by the Holy Spirit. He's turned on the lights. He's transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. That's the good news of the gospel. Good news that ought to keep within us two very important spiritual dispositions. Humility and gratitude. Humility and gratitude, God's work of illumination through the Holy Spirit ought to keep us humble and grateful. Humble because we were not the instruments of our salvation or our illumination. We were not the ones that made us see. We didn't educate or legislate ourselves or work ourselves into salvation. God has done it. Every bit of it. What have you now that you have not received, Paul will say elsewhere, implying an answer of nothing. Everything you have is a gift from God. Therefore, you have no reason to boast. And a believer ought to be humble. That's what the cross ought to say to us. But not only that, God's wisdom should also keep us in a state of constant gratitude. You see, you and I were blind. We had no hope of seeing God's wisdom. And yet God came and worked in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. God took the initiative. God acted. God saved. And he did so in spite of your inclination away from him and his wisdom. You were running the wrong way, and he came and got you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's the Holy Spirit's illumination. Believers, we have to remind ourselves often of God's unilateral action on the cross and his work of the Holy Spirit to illumine our eyes and take away the blinders of sin. And by being reminded of his action on your behalf, have within you a renewed spirit of humility and gratitude. You see, the cross is the garden from which flows a heart of humble thankfulness. And all of this is done only because the Spirit has revealed God's wisdom to you. That's the ministry of the Spirit to us. But secondly, we've seen his ministry to us. Now let's examine the Spirit's identity, the Holy Spirit's identity. Paul says in the latter half of verse 10 and verse 11 that the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Paul here is taking us into God himself. He's teaching the Corinthians about who the Holy Spirit is and about how God relates to us. This is getting into the doctrine of the Trinity, specifically the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which is sometimes called pneumatology, which comes from the Greek word pneuma, which means spirit or breath. This doctrinal groundwork is important, specifically to Paul's arguments, because he will later correct the Corinthians for their wrong views of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And what he's doing is laying a foundation for a proper view of the Spirit's work among the people of God and grounding it in a proper view of the Spirit's identity. Or to say it another way, 
Who the Spirit is will inform how we understand what the Spirit does. We need to understand who the Spirit is if we're to rightly understand what his ministry is to believers. So back to the text. The Spirit searches everything, Paul says, which does not mean that the Spirit was previously ignorant of something and he had to go search it out. He had to go learn something. Paul is rather saying that nothing is outside of the Spirit's scope of knowledge or of wisdom. He, as we'll see explicitly in a moment, is fully God, and as such, the Holy Spirit has no limitations. If the Spirit is fully God, fully sharing in the divine nature, then he possesses all of the qualities that God has. He is omniscient, that is, he knows everything. He's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere. He searches everything. Nothing is outside of the scope of his vision, unlike man, who is limited in his sight and his perceptive abilities. We can only look in one direction and can only do it for a limited amount of time, but the Spirit looks everywhere. He sees everything at all times from every direction. He's not limited by space or time because he is God. The Spirit searches everything. And Paul goes on, he says the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now here we have one of the Bible's clearest arguments in favor of the deity of the Holy Spirit. Or an argument in favor that the Spirit is fully God. This is a doctrine that took the church hundreds of years to iron out. But I'm so glad that the early church fathers did. In brief, the scriptures teach that the Holy Spirit shares in every bit of the divine nature the divine essence, as do the Father and the Son. And I mentioned this a moment ago, but it's worth repeating because the Corinthians got their doctrine of the Holy Spirit wrong and churches all over today get it wrong. People think that the Holy Spirit is some sort of impersonal force, some sort of mystical impulse sent out by God to get his work done in the world. Or even worse, you'll hear people explicitly teach a heresy called modalism. It's a very old heresy. It's one of the first ones that the church encountered, which teaches that there's one God, but that God chooses to reveal himself in three different modes. So we have God in the Old Testament revealing himself as a father, and then God reveals himself as the son, and then God reveals himself now after Pentecost as a Holy Spirit. This is an old heresy that undermines all aspects of your theology. This is a problem, and I'm not going to go into a full defense of all of that, but a couple of brief points by way of rebuttal. If modalism is true, the cross doesn't make any sense. Right? Who is it that's being crucified on the cross? And in that moment, who is it that's receiving the sacrifice? Or who was it that was in the grave, and who was it that raised him from the grave? Modalism obliterates Trinitarian theology. It messes with the doctrine of the atonement brings all sorts of problems. Without the Trinity, the cross becomes the confusion of God rather than the wisdom of God, which is the power of God. Secondly, if modalism is true, then the New Testament authors were totally ignorant of it because Paul often speaks of the Father and the Son and the Spirit as being personally distinct. For example, biblical authors will say that you can sin against the Holy Spirit. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. Can you grieve an impersonal force? Right? Can you grieve the wind? Can you grieve your shoes? No, you grieve people, persons. This kind of language would make no sense if modalism is true. Now moving back to our text, a little rabbit trail. 
I'll go back. Back to our text. Paul's argument is clear. The Spirit has revealed God's wisdom to us, and the Spirit searches even the depths of God. And to further explain his point, he uses a human analogy. For who knows a person's thoughts, Paul says, except, except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Paul's argument is pretty simple. Who knows what's going on in your head? Nobody but you. Nobody can read your mind, not even your spouse, who knows you as the best in the world. They can't read your thoughts. Only you know them. So too, the Spirit of God is fully aware of God's divine thought life, if I could use human language as an analogy there for a moment. And he can do that because the Spirit can plumb the depths of God. And because he is fully God, we can be assured of some important things. First, because he is fully God, this is important for our, our proper view of worship in the church. The Spirit is fully God, and this is crucial for our proper worship. He's fully God, just as much as the Son is, and just as much as the Father is. And this is not some doctrinal nitpicking. Right thinking about God is necessary for the right worship of God, as the early church fathers understood. And that led them to clarify and to fight for these orthodox principles. Basil of Caesarea wrote the first treatise in church history on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It's very good. I encourage you to read it. It's called On the Holy Spirit. And he did so because he was convinced that pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, is crucial for our worship. Here's a question. If the Spirit is God, fully God, then he is worthy of our worship. If he's not fully God, then worshiping him is idolatry. So which is it? This is not a slight question. This is a big deal. It's crucial for a right understanding of worship. We cannot worship a God that we do not know, and we can't worship in spirit and in truth when we don't grasp the truth about who this God is. The deity of the Spirit is crucial to our right and proper worship. Second, the second conclusion we can draw from Paul's statements on the Holy Spirit is that the Spirit is a faithful witness. The Spirit is a faithful witness. If the Spirit reveals God's wisdom to us and the Spirit is fully God's Spirit, then we don't have to second-guess His work of illumination and revelation. We don't have to doubt the wisdom that the Spirit has revealed to us. Nor do we have to doubt that God's wisdom is so deep that the Spirit can't reach it. We can rest securely upon the wisdom revealed by the Holy Spirit because nothing is too profound for Him. Nothing is outside of his reach. Nothing is deeper in the Father that the Spirit can't get to. Nothing is too complex for the Spirit to work out. The Spirit is fully God and thus can be a faithful witness. That's the Spirit's identity. So we've looked at the Spirit's ministry and the Spirit's identity. Now let's look at verse 12 and see our gift of the Holy Spirit. Our gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 12 says... Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Now here Paul is heightening the contrast. He's making explicit the difference between the spiritual and the worldly, the spiritual and the fleshly, the natural. We could even say between the wise and the fools. What we've been given is not the spirit of the world, not worldly wisdom, those things that he's been unmasking and showing is empty, bringing them to nothing. 
We're filled not with worldly philosophy, and we're not to be led astray by such things. We've been given the Spirit of God Himself, the Spirit who is from God, who is sent by God, who is one with God, who's sharing in the divine essence, searching Himself, the very deep things of God. And He shares those things with us. That's the Spirit we've been given. And that's the contrasting element that believers have. What is it that makes you different from every other fool in the world? I'll tell you this it's not our wisdom. It's not our wit. It's not that we're smarter or we're cleverer or that we're more beautiful or we're more humble. It's that believers have the Spirit of God. That's what makes them distinct from the world. That's what makes them able at all to understand the glorious gospel of God. They didn't figure it out on their own. Believers don't just intuit it with their extra keen minds. They were dark of mind themselves. But the Spirit of God came and He opened their eyes. That's what the next part of the verse says. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why is that? So that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. We've not been given divine wisdom and spiritual illumination because we're so wonderful. We've been given them for a purpose. So that we might understand, Paul says. So that we might know, so that we might have certainty. We haven't been given this spirit primarily so that we can feel a certain way. We've been given so that we can know, so that we can understand, that we might put on the mind of Christ, he says at the end of this chapter. Christianity is a religion concerned with truth, with knowledge, with what we know to be true. And that's what the gift of the Spirit gives to us, the ability to understand and to know the hidden wisdom of God that's been revealed in Christ Jesus crucified. And so I ask you, do you know this gospel? Do you understand what the Spirit reveals? Have you understood, as Paul describes it, the things freely given to us by God? And these things given to us freely are salvation and its benefits, things that can be freely given because Christ was crucified on the cross. He's earned it all, and thus it can be given freely. That's the simple message of God's wisdom. Man, in his pride, sinned. He violated God's law, every bit of it. He refused to honor God, and as such, he stole and he murdered. He engaged in sexual immorality. He lied. He worshipped all the idols of this world, and he loved it all. He had no desire to submit to God. He had no heart for repentance or for bowing the knee. But God, but God, Scripture says, came. He came to man in his deadness and sin. He came to man while he was dead in his trespasses and he provided a way for man to be restored. But this way was not a self-help plan. See, man was dead and he couldn't help himself out of the grave. He needed rescuing. Even more than that, he needed resurrecting. And that's what God has done on the cross. The mystery of God's wisdom is that he has done it, but he's done it through great cost. Great cost to himself. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die in the place of sinners, and that's good news. Jesus has borne the punishment earned by his people. He's taken every bit of it, every drop of wrath, and he's borne it on his shoulders on the cross at Calvary. And he's taken it to the grave, and he's buried it there forever. And that same Jesus was raised three days later, being a foretaste of what all believers will have one day. We too will be raised to life, eternal life, if we but believe in him. And so I ask you, do you believe, do you know this plan of God? Do you trust in this Jesus Christ? And if you do, then praise God for the gift of the Holy Spirit who has revealed this truth to you. You didn't earn it. 
You didn't muster yourself up and work your way into this knowledge. God has given you the very knowledge to be able to see the glory of God seen in the cross of Calvary. But if you do not believe, if, you di- if you're still not sure of exactly what I'm talking about, if you're not convinced of what I'm saying, that it really is the good news that I think it is, then I encourage you to read and test the scriptures. Read them for what they say. Test the logic of them. Lean into them. The scriptures grant you warrant to believe in this Christ and do not forsake the investigation until you come away with faith and with assurance of the things that you know to be true. See, the plan of God, the wisdom of God is more comprehensive. It's more consistent. It's more glorious than any other wisdom that this world can offer. No other system, no other philosophy, no other worldview can come close to the consistency or the expansiveness of God's wisdom. And you're utterly doomed without it. Read of Jesus in scripture and hear of his love for sinners. How he loved fully without being loved in return. How he served, served even to death without seeking to be served himself. How he died rather than demanding life so that people might be forgiven of their pride and worldly foolishness. This Jesus is the wisdom of God. Pray to God for the eyes to see. Pray that the Holy Spirit would grant you faith and belief. And by your believing, have life in Him. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Eyes to see the things freely given to us by God. Moving on. So far we have seen the Spirit's ministry, the Spirit's identity, and the gift of the Spirit to us. Now let's turn and see in verse 13 our spiritual duty. Our spiritual duty duty. Verse 13 says, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. This wisdom of ours is explicitly not imparted by words of human wisdom, Paul says. And that's what Paul has said of his own ministry above in verse 2. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. He intentionally decided to forsake To avoid human wisdom, the wisdom of this age, the world's standards of what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. And he decided to know only the foolish message of the gospel. That was his calling. And that's the calling of every believer and every preacher of every age. And that's why he shifts here in verse 13 to the first person plural. He says, we, we impart. He includes himself in this duty. Every believer, every teacher, every preacher is to proclaim God's wisdom in a manner consistent with the nature of that wisdom. And if the wisdom is revealed only through the work of the Holy Spirit, then it would be foolish to try and use the world's wisdom to teach that spiritual wisdom. doesn't make any sense. How could you impart spiritual wisdom through fleshly tactics? You're going to try and give spiritual wisdom by manipulation by trying to cajole or pressure or induce somebody into belief, when the first prerequisite of their belief is an act of the Holy Spirit in their heart? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work. It's not logical. And in fact, it undermines the message. That's what Paul says in chapter 1. Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. You see, using worldly tactics, worldly philosophy, worldly values undermines the gospel. It nullifies its power. 
It takes a message all about God's glory and it makes it about man's glory. It doesn't just slightly shift the message and put it a little off course. It turns it upside down and destroys the gospel. And churches do this all the time. We can proclaim a message that Jesus wants the broken and the hurting. But when somebody comes in that's broken and hurting in ways that make us a little uncomfortable with, then we can ignore them or explicitly ask them to leave. Churches say that they welcome all sinners, but then they get uncomfortable around addicts or around the poor, people with messy lives, people who vote differently, people who look differently, people who talk differently. What we're doing when we say that the gospel is for everybody, but then we treat different kinds of sinners in different ways, what we're doing is using the world's wisdom to try and preach a spiritual message. We're telling people that when they get their act together, then they can come in, which is exactly what the world says. The world says, get it together. Get your finances right. Get your house in order. Get your education done. Get your repentance just right. Make sure you've atoned just enough. Then you can participate. But that's not the gospel. That's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel, God's spiritual wisdom, is that you cannot get yourself right enough to come into God's presence. You can't clean yourself up enough to earn a seat at God's table. God's gospel is exactly the opposite of the world's wisdom because you could not clean yourself up. And because you couldn't do it, God came and died on the cross so that you could be cleaned up. God came to wash you. God came to straighten you up. God came to redeem you. You didn't do it. In fact, you couldn't do it. Don't try to do it. Come to God and believe in this message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's step one. That's the only step. Come and believe. Nobody is outside of that message. Nobody is excluded from that necessity. Everybody must be washed by Jesus Christ if he is to be washed at all. Nobody straightens out their own messy lives apart from faith in Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. Do you believe in that? Do you trust in this one who is proclaimed in the spiritual wisdom? And if you do, don't succumb to the temptation to return to worldly standards. Don't treat outsiders and sinners with partiality and with prejudice. Embrace sinners for what they are. Human beings made in God's image and as such, each of them is a potential future brother and sister in Christ. No matter how sinful they are in the moment. The only thing that differentiates you and me from the addict under the overpass or the prostitute on the corner is the fact that God's spirit has been given to you to enable you to see and believe. That's the only thing keeping a great sinner from becoming the next brother and sister in Christ, the next Paul, or the next Billy Graham. It's the Holy Spirit working, opening their eyes to see the glory of the gospel in Christ crucified. And if you haven't believed in this gospel, press into Jesus today. Strain to reach him. Work to understand the scripture. See how scripture calls every man a hell-bound sinner apart from Jesus Christ. But how Christ calls for every hell-bound sinner to come to him and believe. And by believing, have life. That's all that's required of you. Come and believe. Come and be forgiven. Come and be washed and made pure. Come and have your past sins removed and your guilt taken away. Come and have your conscience made white. Come and believe, and you too can be made spiritual. That's our goal. That's our mission, to have spirit-taught truths, spiritual truths, 
taught to the spiritual. That was Paul's mission, and that's our mission. May God grant us success in our spiritual duty. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for the gift that you've given to us on the cross and flowing from that atonement, that gift on the cross, the work of the Holy Spirit, whom you and the Son send to open the eyes of sinful people. Father, I pray that you would open closed eyes even today, that you would save, that you would work, that you would encourage, that you would build up and edify, that you would correct that you would warn, that you would move and build up your church, make your church holy, not for our glory, but for your glory. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen. We're going to close by singing, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. Please stand.